Hello, welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill, and I'm here with Steve. Good afternoon, Steve. Good afternoon, Bill. We are out here at Birdsong Park in Orchard Park, New York, uh, not too far outside Buffalo. And what we're going to do today, just like we do in every episode, is give you the experience of being out in the woods, on the trail, and in the field. Every month, we pick a natural history topic, do lots of research on that topic, and then bring you outside to share everything we learned. Now, Steve, it's your job right now to tell everybody what is this month's topic. So as we said last episode, today we'll be talking about nature's junk food, sap, again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And last episode, I tricked Bill into covering the human activity of maple sugaring all on his own. Well done. And this episode, I'll be talking about the non-human animal equivalent to maple sugaring. So this is like the... uh Second of a two-part suite. Ah, that's great. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> Just got that one. So episodes 17 and 18 can really stand on their own, but I highly recommend going back and checking out episode 17 if you haven't already. Yes, especially because this one will be very Steve-heavy, <laughs> and uh, I, I won't be saying much except um, making goofy comments on the side. <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. You want to take the boardwalk here? Yeah, let's do the boardwalk. All right, so... Uh, While Steve's kind of getting his notes ready, um, I'll just talk a little bit about this park. It's not a a very old park. It's probably been here about 10 or 15 years. It is a suburban park, and this was a park, I was telling Steve as we were walking in, this was a park a developer put in because um, this town has a policy is that if wetlands are developed, then the developer needs to create a natural space of uh, similar size. And this is a... very much a park that uh, you would think a developer would put in. Lots of invasive species. <laughs> sure. Uh, lots of hard-packed trails. Yeah. So while it's not a, a very wild space, it, it is a nice island of green in the middle of suburbia. We're out here uh, late March, so I was just going to say I, I have heard the first bird of spring here in western New York. Are you talking about the robin? No, I'm not talking about the robin. Who's the first bird of spring? Oh, come on, he says... Conqueree. Oh, right. The red-winged blackbird. That's right. That is the true first bird of spring in, in my opinion. All right. So there's a few concepts that I really think we should reiterate from the last episode, just because they're really an important foothold for this episode as well. Okay. Just a really quick, we're going to breeze through these, all right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give you two minutes. Okay. All right. So last episode, we talked about the difference between vascular and non-vascular plants. Effectively, the vascular plants have roots and transport tissues known as xylem and phloem, while the non-vascular plants, like mosses, liverworts, hornworts, and some algaes, do not. So in vascular plants, you have the phloem that primarily translocates sugars created in the leaves to other parts of the plant for storage, growth, repair, or other metabolic processes. We also have the xylem, which primarily transports water from the roots up through the trunk, the branches, and out through the leaf stomata right to the atmosphere in a continuous unbroken column of water, and it does this through the fascinating properties of water, transpiration, and billions of years of evolution. I like <laughs> that you added that in. As a side note, <laughs> the first vascular plant fossil is estimated to be over 400 million years old. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> that's intense. <laughs> I think we can more or less move on to the topic of this episode. So last episode, we explained that when you tap a maple tree, you're tapping the xylem. You're going through the bark, the inner bark, the cambium layer, into the xylem, also called the sapwood. Right. And the xylem, the fluid that's in the xylem, is about 98% water in maple trees. And that's really the maximum sugariness that you're going to find in xylem sap. Though, 
there is some variation, of course, right? From year to year and from, you know, condition to condition. So today we'll find out that few other animals actually tap the xylem. Because of this, we'll mostly be focusing on the sap found in the phloem instead. But before I do, I want to quickly mention the animals who enjoy xylem sap from maple trees, just like humans do, you know. So now we're shifting over to the red squirrel. Did you know about this red squirrel? I think so, yeah. Because Bern Heinrich actually wrote about him. Right. There's some people theorizing that possibly through watching squirrels, that's how Native Americans figured out you could tap. Right. I I was thinking about that. So it's not that red squirrels do what humans do. It's much more likely to say that humans do what red squirrels do. (laughs) Exactly. All right. So like humans, red squirrels have been observed harvesting syrup and sugar from maple trees. Hang on. What? Huh? <laughs> okay. No, no, no. Oh, okay, yeah. Notice that I said syrup. Yeah, okay. And notice that I said sugar. I think I know where you're going. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so how again, are they harvesting syrup, Steve? <laughs> so actually, an observation came from a 1992 paper from the Journal of Mammalogy, written by one of, like I was just saying, one of our favorite authors, Professor Emeritus in the biology department in the, at the University of Vermont, Bernd Heinrich. all-around all awesome guy. Yeah, all-around great naturalist. So... He had noted this behavior in red squirrels. He saw that they were, uh, like, lapping up sap off of trees, and he had three general questions about it. I thought that these were pretty good questions, though they were mistaken, and I'll get, I'll get to that in a moment. So the three questions are, are they drinking sap for the water? That's one. Number two, are they drinking sap for the calories? And number three, is this a random opportunistic behavior, or is it systematic? So in terms of water, it's very unlikely that they're drinking the sap for water. And this is because there's plenty of melting snow during this time of the year, right? Like they could get it anywhere. Why would they go for the sap, right? And then in terms of the calories, sap is about 97.5% water in sugar maples and 98.8% water in red maples. So uh, Heinrich worked it out. And he was saying that the squirrel would need to drink 157 liters to hit his daily calorie intake if he was only, you know, drinking sap. But still, that's crazy. That's all. He'd be dead. Yeah. So these are good questions, but as it turns out, they're based on an incorrect premise. And he recognizes this in the paper. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking him to task. <laughs> I would hope not. Yeah. So the red squirrels, as I just said to you, the red squirrels are not drinking sap. They're drinking maple syrup and eating maple sugar. So amazingly, these red squirrels would quickly bite the bark of the young trees. And I don't know why he did this. I don't know how, how, uh, how descriptive these papers have to be but he even he he said an average of one second it took them to bite the tree wow i'm surprised he would he he put so much detail in this paper but i do have to say that this paper was really unlike i think almost any other paper that i've written it was very descriptive it felt like there were so many little anecdotes in it was it more just narrative it felt like one of his book chapters that's what it felt like but he was very very precise and you know uh it it was a very interesting paper to say the least and you did say it was unlike most papers you've written oh i said written yeah that's that is also true So like I was saying, red squirrels would quickly bite the bark of young trees. And by young, I mean they would be between 4 and 15 centimeters in in diameter. Well, that makes sense, because the outer bark then would be very thin and easy to get through. And I should say that his sample of trees went up to 20 centimeters, but the squirrels weren't using 
the largest of them. They were only using up one. to 15 centimeters okay. in diameter. And they would do a nice vampire scratch on it. <laughs> they would do these about two millimeters wide. It would look like two little chisel-like grooves that punctured the xylem beneath the outer bark layer. And then they would leave without drinking any sap. So here's my question. Do you think vertical branches and horizontal branches on the tree would be bitten and eaten from at equal rates. Oh, man. Uh, no, I would think horizontal would be. Would be? Would be more. You think horizontal would be more? Well, I'm thinking of what we were talking about, how the pressure would... Well, how about this, Bill? Let's say if you were sticking your arm out yeah. and you had a cut on your arm. Yeah. Now, just imagine what would happen to the blood. It would just kind of drip. Yeah. But then imagine the same thing now, same scenario, but if your arm was up, you would have the blood dripping down your arm. Oh, okay. Right? Yes. So now what do you think the answer is? Well, now, obviously, <laughs> it's the vertical branches because then the sap's going to be on the branch. Right. And when there was taps on horizontal branches, the red squirrels would ignore it because the sugar content would never get above 2 or 4%. Okay. And I'll describe why that is right now because <laughs> I actually have an, an interesting timeline of events so what they were doing is that they were waiting for the sap to run down the bark that sounds nice. like yeah that's what I was going to yeah. say so like I was saying what they were actually doing is that they were waiting for the sap to run down the bark and for the water to evaporate out of it so it became more of a syrup or a dried sugar so we know this because they would ignore the taps on the horizontal branches because they would drip straight to the ground instead of streaking down the tree he actually gave an interesting daily timeline. He did not do this in a list form. <laughs> he did this in paragraph form. So I, I, I shortened it to a list. So sometime before 8 a.m., the squirrels would puncture the bark. 8 a.m., the sap begins to run. 9 a.m., the sap is about 6% sugar. 11 a.m., sap stopped running. 1 p.m., sugar streaks were sticky. They were more than 55% sugar at this point. So this timeline is true of both sunny days and overcast days because the water evaporating from the sap is not a function of temperature, it's a function of surface area. So Makes if you sense. spread out sap over a big enough area, it'll evaporate quicker. Yeah. And then we get to 6 or 7 a.m. the next day. This is when the squirrels are harvesting, and by harvesting I mean licking syrup or chewing on the candied sugar from the previous day's tapping unless it rained and washed it away. And, and I found this was interesting as well. We also had a monthly timeline, and I think this is really interesting because last episode we had talked about the seasonality of maple sap running. And as Bill said last episode, maple syrup only runs during warm winter days, early spring days before the buds open, and after the leaves drop in autumn. In late January, he had 15 sugar maples with 158 bite marks. Wow. And in his same sample, he had 64 other trees. These were red maples, quaking aspens, birches, and apples. Had zero bite marks. Okay. That's a huge yeah. <laughs> difference, right? That so, tells you they're focused. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All of those trees could have had bites, and then they could have just fed from the ones that produced. But no, they're not biting the ones that aren't going to produce. It seems that the squirrels know which trees they're biting. Exactly yeah. right. So in, in early March... The 15 sugar maple trees now had 448 bite marks, and the 64 other trees had only six bite marks. Those are just the dumb squirrels. <laughs> no, in early July, all the bites healed, they welted over, 
and there were no new bites recorded. Crashing from their sugar high. <laughs> <laughs> so you had, in late November, you actually got, because again, it's the fall, you're going to have some sap flow, you had new bites only after cold nights and sunny days. And he observed that on 29 trees that had uh, sap flowing during that time. So as you can see, this is a systematic process. They're only tapping maple trees. And I think we can kind of take this away from it based on what we saw in early July where there were no new bites, is that the squirrels are only biting trees during times of the year that the sap's flowing. So Makes sense. Yeah, right. So they, they have some mechanism for knowing that. And another thing Heinrich looked at, because he gets so involved in these things, he, he found on the days that it was snowing, he could actually look at where the squirrels were actually visiting because if there's snow on the ground, you can look at tracks. And so what he found was that 74 out of 93 of the tapped sugar maple trees were visited. Zero out of 15 of the untapped sugar maples were visited. So they even have they even remember which trees they tapped and which trees they didn't. Wow. Even of the same species, which is really interesting. And 7 out of 113 of the untapped other trees, again, the red maples, quaking aspens, birches, and apples, were visited. So that's 7 out of 113. Some, yeah. So, But very, very little. Yeah. And again, if you remember, I did say that some of those trees were bitten in the previous numbers that I've listed. Okay. So I'm just going to end on, on a couple other things. Like I said, this was systematic. So when there was maples around, effectively, only the sugar maples were tapped. When there was no sugar maples around, at least in one of his sites, he found that red maples were actually extensively tapped. But only when sugar maples weren't around. Okay. And this is the final note on, on red squirrels. So while red squirrels are making their own maple syrup taps, they've also been observed feeding from yellow-bellied sapsucker wells on various trees during the growing season. And this is a different kind of sap. In other words, we're leaving the world of xylem sap and we're entering the fascinating world of phloem sap. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So before I get into phloem, do you want to maybe walk a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I want to give to, some... I'm getting a little cold. Oh, I'm yeah. Ugh. Now I was going to mention before though that there are some products that are made, like molasses. Is I was reading in prep for the the both of these episodes that mm-hmm. that's made from the xylem and the phloem sap. Okay, yeah, they're combined. So. I've heard of people tapping maple trees and using phloem sap as well. Yeah, but I didn't. I didn't. I don't really research the maple, so I don't <laughs> Now, I've told a story for a lot of years that um, with my second graders, there's a big silver maple in our schoolyard that we tap every year, mm-hmm. and we get sap out of it, and then uh, we boil it down in the classroom and have pancakes. They're nice. But I, I'm not completely honest with them because I've been doing it for probably 10 years, mm-hmm. and after the first year, I never used the sap from that tree. I always just used sap that I collect at home. Oh, I thought you were going to say you just use Aunt Jemima's. No, no. <laughs> no, no. But because the sap at home I get from sugar maples. But that first year I made syrup from the silver maple sap, mm-hmm. it tasted off. Oh, okay. Like, it didn't taste bad. It, there was a sweet taste to it, but it just did not taste like maple syrup. I think I've heard that about silver maple sap. Well, I've always read and talked to people and said, oh, you can harvest sap from any maple. And you don't notice the flavor difference, but as we keep saying, you just have to boil more when you're taking it from silver maples, from mm-hmm. box elders, you know, any other species besides sugar. And I've actually asked a couple um, syrup producers about it, and they said, there shouldn't be any difference. It should taste the same. 
Um, but then when doing research, I found that sometimes you get off flavor and it very often has something to do with the materials you're using to collect. Oh, really? So it could have been something in the tap. It could have been something in my buckets. Oh. Um, just from everything I've read, that seems to be the, the biggest culprit or the hmm. most likeliest yeah. reason. So You're using like a rusty tap and an unwashed bucket. <laughs> I am using some really old taps. So next year I plan on like buying some new equipment. Yeah. Sterilizing everything and using that sap and see if I get decent syrup. Mr. Michael, I could taste like soap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it tastes like bleach. <laughs> so it didn't taste bad. It's, it almost tasted like corn syrup or something okay. when we did it. So. Interesting. Yeah. And I guess a lot of syrup that's commercially available is corn syrup. Right. Most of the stuff, the cheap stuff you find on supermarket shelves is mostly corn syrup with artificial flavoring. There's actually very, no or very little maple in it at all. Wow. Unless it says, you know, pure maple syrup and it's probably going to be 25 bucks for a half <laughs> right. gallon. Right. Yeah. All right, guys. So now that we're entering the world of phloem, I should just give a short description of what's going on in the phloem. We touched on it a little bit last episode, but last episode was really the xylem episode. Right. So now we're out of that world. We're going into the phloem. So this is the... The cells that are just under the outer bark. Yeah. yeah, the, yeah. So this is the inner bark. And while the phloem primarily translocates sugar, it also translocates hormones, mineral elements, amino acids, all dissolved in water. Where's this path going? <laughs> <laughs> so we just walked up onto a little viewing platform and then walked right back down. This is actually kind of a nice place. Yeah. Walking by a nice pond with cattails all around it. Yeah. Narrow leaf cattail. Yeah. Someone told me once that if you see a cattail head that is intact in the uh, spring that it's been taken over by uh, a species of caterpillar oh. that had webbed that together and it's overwintering in there. Okay, I thought I've also read that spiders might do something like that too. And maybe that's what it was. Yeah, so. maybe we'll do a cattail episode someday. Because <laughs> I think we could talk about the narrow leaf, the broad leaf, oh, yeah. and the hybrid. I think that would be a good episode. Alright, so we were talking about the flow. <laughs> it, <laughs> it translocates sugar, hormones, mineral elements, amino acids, and that's all dissolved in water, and it transports these up and down the plant for areas of storage or metabolic demand. So unlike the xylem, the phloem is not dead. If right. you recall from last episode, the xylem are all dead tissues. They're just lignified, they're hard, they're impermeable to water, um, but these are not like that. The phloem is made up of living cells. So phloem moves sugars via active transport, meaning that it uses energy to move sugar from cell to cell. And that doesn't happen in the xylem. The xylem's all passive, right? Exactly right. Yeah. So the reason that it has to use active transport is because in the leaves, photosynthesis takes CO2 and water and converts them into sugar and oxygen. And what the plant needs to do is it needs to transport that sugar from an area with low sugar concentration to places all over the plant with high concentrations of sugar. So naturally, and this is something we brought up last episode, naturally, and this is just a, a nice little rhyme, yeah. the flow goes from high to low. low. Right. A substance with a high concentration tends to spread into areas with low concentration. So maybe think about putting salt in water or putting milk in coffee. Instead of holding together, it diffuses itself throughout the liquid you put it in. And yeah. the same would 
be true for salt. That's just a natural process. You want to go from high concentration to low concentration. But because the plant needs to have a substance go from a low concentration to a high concentration, it needs to use energy to move that substance there. So the tree is like actively pushing something? Oh yeah, it's wow. it's using ATP, chemical energy okay. in the in the form of ATP. So okay. it breaks a bond that releases energy and part of the reason I bring this up is because phloem does not automatically leak sap when it's damaged because it has to be actively transported out. You know, like if you damage the xylem, there's going to be some leaking. But phloem is pretty controlled. And part of the reason I bring that up is because it's not exactly clear or understood how different animals keep phloem sap flowing. Uh, okay. So, some, some, I mean, some of them think it might be like a saliva thing. There might be something where they're able to stop the enzymes from clogging the you know the pores or whatever yeah, it's so, like a mosquito with an anticoagulant that might be it it might be like an anticoagulant an anti-sapulant <laughs> <laughs> no that wouldn't be it <laughs> all right so now i'm going to move on to talk about the phloem to talking about an animal who is an obligate phloem sap consumer Ooh. obligate means they have to eat it now, hang on before you tell us can we walk because i'm getting cold sure Somehow sorry how we stopped again <laughs> right yeah 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 <laughs> All right, so it's time to start talking about the animals who like to eat phloem sap. So as we said during the last episode, the plants provide three types of sugar-rich foods for animals. You have the nectar in the flowers, you have fleshy fruits, and you have sap. And now, when you think about those three things, when you think about the nectar, the fruits, and the sap, there's one of those does not belong. There's one that is different. And that is, when you look at the first two examples, there's a mutualistic relationship there. Oh. So when it comes to nectar and fruits, you have that pollination and you have seed dispersal. Right. The plant's getting something and it's giving something. Yep, but when animals are eating sap, it's different. That relationship is antagonistic or unidirectional. It's a one-way street. So the animal benefits while the plant suffers, quote-unquote suffers, right. <laughs> is stressed. The plant is harmed. Yes, and the reason this is is because the phloem sap's primary function is long-distance transport of nutrients around the plant, not nutrients to feed to animals. <laughs> so so that's, that's a big difference right there. All right, so now I want to bring up something called the paradox of phloem sap. And I'm just going to quote uh, right from the article here. Although phloem sap is nutrient-rich compared with many other plant products and generally lacking in toxins and feeding deterrents, it is consumed as the dominant or sole diet by a very restricted range of animals, exclusively insects of the order Hemiptera. Oh. The true bugs. Yeah. All that means is that phloem sap is a requirement in their diet. Yeah. Every other animal mentioned after we finish with Hemipterans do not require phloem sap in their diet, they just like to eat it. <laughs> yeah. So um, some insect examples of this group that don't necessarily need it, but they just like it, are thrips and lepidopterans. Butterflies. And moths. Yes. You idiot. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's very speciesist. No. Or oh, that be generalist. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So before we get any further with the hemipterans, I just want to make clear that up until this point, we've been talking about the phloem and the xylem of trees. But I also want to make sure that we understand that when we're talking about hemipterans, we're also talking about herbaceous plants, so the non-woody plants as well. So of course, just in these last two episodes, we've been talking about the xylem and the phloem in trees, but now we also have to consider xylem and phloem in non-woody species. Anything with sap. Yeah. So when I'm talking about hemipterans, 
All we said to describe that was true bugs. But just to give someone a better idea of what we mean, the group of hemipterans, there's 82,000 species described, <laughs> yeah. but they project maybe it's closer to 200,000. Yeah. So this group includes the stink bugs, milkweed bugs, ambush bugs, assassin bugs, water striders, spittle bugs, aphids, white flies, cicadas, and then pretty much my favorite group, the tree hoppers, the leaf hoppers, and the plant hoppers. I love those guys. Yeah. And one of the characteristics that is common among these groups is that they have sucking mouth parts. Right. And that might be able to help with sucking up something like sap. I would think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, what a coincidence. Yeah, well, this is crazy. <laughs> there are two major issues with consuming phloem sap. Number one, there's something called the nitrogen barrier. In other words, sap has low nitrogen quality. And what they mean by that is that there's a high ratio of non-essential to essential amino acids in phloem sap. And I'll describe what that is in just a second. But just to get an idea of the ratio from essential to non-essential is 1 to 4 no. to 1 to 20. Holy. Yeah, while animal protein is a 1 to 1 ratio. So there's just as much essential amino acids to non-essential amino acids. Yeah. So in case you don't know what I mean by amino acids, these are just biologically important nitrogen-containing organic compounds. Otherwise, they're known as the building blocks of proteins. <laughs> <laughs> so there's about 500 known amino acids, and 20 of those appear in the genetic code. I found that this was interesting because this isn't something that I really studied in my coursework, but animals are metabolically impoverished. And I think maybe if you're like a vegetarian or a vegan, or maybe just someone who's who has a high-protein diet, someone who really watches what they eat because they're trying to put on muscle mass or have a higher-output body, you may pay attention to this more than I would, but what I'm trying to say by that is that animals lack the ability to synthesize 9 of the 20 amino acids that make up proteins. If a concentration of just one of these essential amino acids is in short supply, protein synthesis and growth of an animal are constrained. So as you know, humans are animals, yes. <laughs> so humans have the same issue. There's plenty of amino acids that our body can't manufacture. I have a list here, but it wouldn't even make sense to read it. <laughs> and there's even some that we can produce, but we don't produce in a great enough quantity. So in times of our lives of like faster growth, we actually need to bring in more through our diet. Okay. So a few foods that we could eat that actually make up for this lack of our ability to generate these things on our own are milk, eggs meat and tofu, they all contain those essential amino acids required uh, for humans. Okay. And the reason they're called essential is just because we don't make them. That's the only difference between essential and non-essential. Sure. So getting back to the insects, these insects need to eat a ton of sap to get their amino acid numbers, especially the larvae. But it isn't enough. Some essential acids are simply absent from phloem sap. But obviously these insects, are they survive, right? They're still alive, right? right? So, so they, so they must be getting by somehow. Yeah. And the way they're doing that is that there is overwhelming evidence that there is an internal symbiotic microorganism inside their cells and inside their gut that actually produce these amino acids for them. Whoa. Right. So they, so they can create them, but the insects cannot. But the way that these microorganisms are passed down is not something that they pick up from the environment. They're passed from parent to offspring. Oh, wow. So it's like these microorganisms have a very specific world that they exist in. Sure. Some are intercellular, so they're, they're restricted to certain cells, but some are also just within the gut. So, for example, the intercellular bacteria Buchnera 
accounts for over 90 to up to 99% of all microbial cells in the pea aphid. Oh, wow. He's mostly that bacteria. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was able to get over the nitrogen barrier, right? Yeah. And there's one final barrier that it needs to get over. That's called the sugar barrier. <laughs> And uh, there's a couple analogies that will really help out here. So the dominant compounds in phloem sap are sugars created from photosynthesis. So in many plants, most of the sugar is in the form of sucrose, a chemically stable disaccharide. So that just means it's, it's made up of two sugars. The problem is that the sap has a water potential that is much more negative than the insect's body fluids, and they drink a lot of it. Ooh, that's not good. So let me explain this, because you have already caught on, but <laughs> what is water potential? So I'll try to explain it as simply as I can. And I, I think I, I hope that this is simple. <laughs> so let's just imagine a single cell. And let's say this cell has a selectively permeable membrane, meaning that water can pass in and out of the membrane of the cell, but things like sugars or salts cannot. The, the pores are too small, sure. so water can fit through. It's like a sieve. Right, exactly. Yeah. So imagine that we put this cell in a solution of water and sugar. And let's just say that the water had a sugar concentration four times greater than the sugar concentration inside of the cell. So what this would cause the cell to do is that the cell would lose water through its membrane until the pressure inside and outside of the cell had reached an equilibrium, meaning that the cell would lose a lot of water and shrivel up. And this is called plasmolysis. The big question is, so what does that mean? What's the fear here? <laughs> and that is that the fluid contents of the insect will transfer into the sugary gut contents via osmosis. This would essentially lead up to the osmotic collapse of the insect. <laughs> In other words, the insect would drink sap, and then all its water would get sucked out of its body into its sap in its stomach to dilute the sap. We don't want that to happen. <laughs> I, mean, all right. I mean, can you picture this in your head, though? <laughs> I mean, obviously, this is not what happens. No. This is similar to what happens if you drink salt water. And I used that four times earlier because that's actually what salt water is. Salt water has four times higher of a salt concentration than our bodily fluids. And the maximum saltiness that our urine can produce isn't as salty as salt water. So for any amount of salt water that you drink, it takes more water to remove that salt from your body. <laughs> so drinking salt water just dehydrates you more. And this is something that you've heard over and over again, but it's because of osmosis. It's because the water wants to leave your body to equalize the difference in pressures between the salt water and the pressure inside your cells. But hemipterins do not have this problem with sugar water. And that's because they have something called a, and I'm very bad at pronouncing things, <laughs> so it's called a sucrase transglucoside activity in the gut. Okay. And that is not worth remembering, but what is worth remembering is that this is an enzyme activity. It's not a microbiota. It's, it's not little creatures living inside its gut doing this. This is just an en enzyme that it produces. It takes many sucrose, which are two sugar compounds, and it turns them into fewer oligosaccharides, which are chains of three to ten sugars. So it's taking many sugars and turning them into fewer sugars. And because osmotic potential is determined by the number of particles in a solution and not the weight of the particles, it actually raises the osmotic potential, which means that it's going to try to suck up less water. I'm with you. Good. <laughs> 
I should actually say, and this is to be more precise for people that really do deal with this type of physiology, that osmotic potential is determined by molarity, not weight. So if anyone's a stickler for that type of stuff, there, there's your answer. <laughs> and this is something that should ring bells for both of us because the excess sugar in the form of those oligosaccharides is expelled as honeydew. Ah. Yeah. So it makes us think of the goldenrod episode. Exactly the right. The very first episode. So the honeydew is sweet. And as we've seen sometimes, like at the end of the anus, there will be a little ball of honeydew. Okay. And other animals sometimes will eat that right off of the, of the animal, of the insect. And in a way, they are indirectly consuming phloem sap when they do that. Sure. And they can do this because honeydew is physiologically less extreme than phloem sap. Again, because of the microbes, there's a higher essential to non-essential amino acid ratio, and it has a lower osmotic pressure, and that's more comparable to its own body fluids. And that's because it converted the sucrose into the oligosaccharides. Okay. There's two ways that other insects will eat honeydew. The first way, when the honeydew is produced from the hemipterin, it'll just drop on the ground. So other insects can consume honeydew that has fallen onto plants and other surfaces. This includes many insects, including flies and wasps, bees, beetles, butterflies, moths, and nectivorous birds and flying foxes. They'll even consume honeydew? Yeah. And they can consume honeydew straight from the hemipterans anus, <laughs> which sounds disgusting, but that's nature, folks. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and again, as Bill alluded to, you got to think back to our goldenrod episode. That's episode one. Uh, we had, we actually have a picture of it. It's a beautiful little sequence of pictures where a formica ant is tending a treehopper nymph. And specifically the one I saw was Publilia concava. This behavior called tending is widely displayed among ants, but it also is done by some wasps and beetles. And incredibly, there's some Madagascan geckos that specifically tend plant hoppers. Wow. So do they, do you know, do the geckos actually protect the honeydew producers in order to get the honeydew from them? No idea. Okay. <laughs> but I do know that some ant species do that. Oh, yeah. And some ant species are actually strongly dependent on honeydew as a food. How I was just saying that hemipterans need to have phloem sap. Yeah. These ants are strongly dependent on the honeydew. So they're indirectly dependent on phloem sap. <laughs> so weird, right? Yeah. So some of these ants actually have a microbial symbiont, like the Buchnera inside the pea aphid that I mentioned earlier, and it's called Blockmania, which has been sequenced, and it actually includes a full gene complement for synthesis of all nine essential amino acids. <laughs> it's the same problem that the hemipteran has. The ant has it too. Yeah, the yeah. ant has the exact same problem, so it needs a symbiont inside of it. It's just these incredible coevolutions. Yeah. It's like there's one coevolution and another coevolution, <laughs> and they're both coevolved with each other. <laughs> oh, man. Would this be convergent coevolution? I guess. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so now I want to bring it all back to what I was saying earlier that this relationship with phloem sap and animals eating it is not a two-way street. And can you guess where I'm going with this? Thinking about ants and tending. No, I'm not sure. Because the ants will protect the plant. Oh, okay. The hemipterans that they're tending depend on that plant, and the ants protect the plant. Like, they'll chase off any insect that lands on the plant that tries to feed on it or anything. So really, in some circumstances, 
this is a mutualism. Okay. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's such an indirect mutualism, right. <laughs> but it's a mutualism. Even though the plant is taking on some damage, it's getting protection. Yeah. Not always, <laughs> but sometimes. Technically, that is a mutualism. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. So now that we're done talking about insects, let's move on to maybe the most popular animal that drinks sap. Let's just say the most popular bird that drinks sap. And okay. can you guess? The sap sucker? Yes, you're exactly <laughs> right. The Spherapicus genus. We only have four in the United States. Three are more Western species. And the only one we have here is the yellow-bellied sapsucker. So the yellow-bellied sapsucker... Is not well-named. <laughs> what a stupid common name. Actually, the scientific name is pretty cool, too. Uh, Sphera is Greek for hammer. And picus is woodpecker, so it's the hammer woodpecker. <laughs> but that's like every woodpecker, it's true. right? Although I do have to say, when he, when the sapsucker is pecking to attract a mate, you know, on a gutter, oh, they sure. very often, it does sound very hammer-like. Oh yeah, yeah, much more so than you know a downy or or something yeah. else. But good anecdote. That's yeah. good. But I should say that I said it's poorly named because it's very difficult to see the yellow on the belly. Unless you're right up next to the bird. Or sure. You have it it's in just your like hand. a faint yellowish. It almost looks like a stain that they couldn't wipe out. Right. So as I said, these are like the most popular animal that drinks sap. At least I would imagine it is. <laughs> I, I think so. I don't know. I think you're right. Right, yeah. Although I, I think many people that I've mentioned that name to, they, they think I'm making it up. Really? When I say, look, there's a yellow-bellied sapsucker, they're like, come <laughs> on, that's not a real bird. <laughs> it does sound like, you know, the silver-bellied gas hawk. Yeah. You know, like something like that. Yeah. All right, so... The yellow-bellied sapsucker are the most migratory and widespread of the sapsuckers. And during the breeding season, they focus mostly on birch trees. They mine sap by digging clusters of little holes in the tree bark. And these are called sap wells. So an individual hole, that's not a well. The group of holes is a well. Oh. It got a little confusing when I was reading the paper. Yeah. That's why I'm making this note now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so if you suffer from trypophobia... <laughs> the fear of holes and i have i'm on the spectrum of that uh i have had days where i felt like all my hairs were up on ends because i couldn't get pictures out of my mind really? that really grosses me out so do not look that up okay. and sap suckers they actually feed on both the xylem and the phloem but the phloem's more important during the breeding season so this is what i was alluding to before normally damaged phloem cells seal off the passageways with proteins and carbohydrates, but somehow the sapsuckers get around this. They somehow keep the phloem flowing. Uh, and it's not really totally understood. There's a but, PhD out there. Somewhere. Right. By the end of the breeding season, you'll find hundreds of holes at a single well. And the older the holes are, the lower they are in the well. So they're newer as you move up. From each hole, the sap could be collected for about three days before it closed up but only the top holes in the well were producing sap. So the total area of the wells were getting bigger throughout the season, but they weren't expanding the hole size. The total grouping of holes was just taking up a larger area on the tree. I'm using hand motions with you, but I'm hoping that I'm, <laughs> I'm saying it in a way that it makes sense in terms of audio. So even after hatching, the sap suckers will actually stick around for nearly a month and feed sap to their young. And this is disgusting, but they also dip insects into sap, like some kind of weird fondue, <laughs> before bringing them back to the nest. So they dip them in the sap, in the sap In the well, wells. And then bring them to the nest. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so, so, and, and the like young will also use sap wells after leaving the nest. A study in Michigan found that yellow-bellied sapsuckers, just under half of the wells, were in paper birch trees. The other, slightly more than half, made up uh, red maples, june berries, and big tooth aspens. This is really strange to me. The trees they chose weren't any bigger than the unused trees of the same species. And again, used and unused trees didn't differ in any other measurement. So not crown size, not bark thickness, not bark moisture. And it was also obvious that the sap trees were not chosen to minimize distance between feeding and the nest. In fact, they would travel sort of further away than they had to to find a tree. Does it have something to do with sap quality? Well, I'll get there. Oh, there is something. So you, you do know? It's not totally understood, okay. but there are some patterns that are actually there. Okay. And it's also worth noting that the sapsuckers didn't care about microhabitat. And what I mean by that is like soil moisture or tree density. Yeah, that was my guess too. None of that mattered, but that's strange because those things definitely affect the quality of the sap that you're getting. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, so you're like every possible explanation you're popping up and you know that's popping into your head. Nope. Nothing <laughs> nothing's nope. right. <laughs> The only thing that they found that fit some type of pattern was the individual qualities of the tree. And what I mean by that is that trees in poor health were preferred by sap suckers. But here's the thing. Every time a tree was in a study, it was previously used. By sap suckers. Yeah. There was never a tree without damage on it. So they don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg. <laughs> they don't know if the trees were unhealthy and that made the sap suckers want to use them. Or if the sap suckers did something to the tree, that which made, made them unhealthy, and then they started using the tree. pecking holes in them. Uh, <laughs> trees that were in poor health or were in the beginning stages of senescence are likely to have higher levels of amino acids in their phloem sap. What's senescence? Senescence is when the tree is dying. It's okay. sort of losing its turgor pressure. It's kind of droopy a little bit. It's just a sad tree. Maybe <laughs> some of the leaves are dying. <laughs> so as we said before... Nitrogen is a limiting factor for animals that feed on phloem sap. And sap suckers may be preferring dying trees because they get a more balanced protein diet out of it. Okay. That seems like it makes a lot of sense because we were just talking about the problems with feeding on phloem. Yeah. yeah, and sap phloem specifically. Sap. Yeah. I'm going to stop you just for a second because mm -hmm. I realize we haven't told people if you're unfamiliar with what sap sucker holes look like, if you ever see a tree that was, it looks like it was shot by a machine gun. Where there's <laughs> small holes in a line. Right. Chances are, are good that that's from a sap sucker. Right. And don't just picture a line. Picture a whole cluster. Yeah. They do kind of poke new holes in lines, but they're always over old holes. Right. So you'll get like a kind of like a tower of holes in one grouping on a tree. Yeah, but the, the holes, tell me if you disagree, but the arrangement of the holes doesn't seem random. Like, there's lines, there's a certain order. Depending on the species there is. But yeah, sometimes you'll get, like, long holes. Sometimes you'll get more circular holes. Sometimes they'll be a little random. And then other times they're, like, a beautiful, like, lattice work of holes. So like, like I was just saying before, the only pattern seemed to be that the wells of the chosen trees were constructed above scars left in the phloem as a result of old wounds. So what these birds are doing is that they're taking advantage of an interesting botanical phenomenon. That is that sap accumulates in tissues right above a girdle or a major wound. This is why every time they make a new hole, it's above an old hole. Okay. Because sap is welling there. It seems to dam the phloem above the holes. 
As predicted by the wounded tree hypothesis, sapsucker preference for individual trees may result from historic use of particular trees in that area. What they're thinking is that it's possible that birds are wounding trees around active wells during the breeding season, so that in the following year, they'll have trees that are already ready to tap. And so this would also explain the clumping as well. Sure. So in the following season, when the, the birds come back, and they return to those already wounded trees, would those new holes they drill then already be higher in protein? It would have that damming effect, and it would have that high amino acid, high protein diet effect. That makes sense then why the holes keep building above. Yeah, sure. yeah. right. So I think we should start walking here, yeah. and I'm going to move on to, to different animals now. Okay. It's just so the audience knows, the two biggest, most interesting stories here were sapsuckers and hemipterans. These next animals I'm going to bring up are not animals that directly go for sap itself. They're animals that are going to be feeding at sapsucker wells, more or less. Okay. So similar to how ants and other animals drink phloem sap indirectly through drinking honeydew, animals other than sapsuckers stop by sapsucker wells to get phloem sap. So <laughs> it's, it's very similar. It's analogous for sure. Yeah. So many of these animals were in observation sections of academic journals. So they're kind of like weird papers. Again, they're similar to the Heinrich paper, but much more anecdotal. I'm just going to list off a few of these species that, that were recorded in a number of these short papers. So I'm not going to go paper by paper, species by species. So we had the ruby-throating hummingbird, which is probably the most interesting one and maybe the most well-known one that stops by sapsucker wells. They actually follow sapsuckers around. <laughs> and I've heard that before because when hummingbirds first return, there aren't a ton of nectar-producing flowers available. Yeah. So they rely on sapsucker wells. Sap is a fair substitute for nectar. Oh yeah. It's not just that they follow them around, they're often undisturbed. Like the sapsuckers don't really care. <laughs> there was only a couple cases that I saw anecdotes of. Who doesn't like hummingbirds? Right? <laughs> yeah, even even the sapsuckers <laughs> like them. Right. Most of these other ones were actually chased away for the most part, but they would still feed at the well. So you had things like black-throated blue warblers, okay. you had black and white warblers, you had Cape May warblers. Wow. Goldfinches, American goldfinches, pine siskins, then you had things like wasps and many other insects. And actually, sometimes these birds wouldn't just go for the sap, they would also go for the insects around the well. I was just thinking with the, <laughs> with the hummingbirds, I'm thinking, oh, well, they're probably getting insects there too. Oh, I didn't know about the warblers though. That's a, a good pointer for birders out there. Hey, did you see some sap wells? Stick around. <laughs> yeah. So this is one little thing that I thought was just fun to do. And this is, I wanted to explain to you guys what it was like to read one of these weird observational studies. Because <laughs> they, they're not normal papers at all. They're just, I'll just give an example. So on July 9th, 1890, while watching a group of birds gathering in the woods around my tame owl, Puffy, two yellow-bellied <laughs> yellow woodpeckers and a hummingbird attracted my attention. And then we'll skip ahead. At 3.35, I killed two young woodpeckers with a single charge of dust shot. A few moments later, hummingbirds alighted in one of the dead maples. At 4.10, I was drawn away by the hooting of a barred owl, and I didn't return to orchard number three until August 7th, when I found only one sapsucker at work, a young one, which I shot. <laughs> but that was ornithology, <laughs> right. you know. <laughs> right. Now, was this particular guy shooting them for study? Because I know in the past, uh, it was thought that sapsuckers were severely detrimental to woodlots. 
and were actively um, eliminated. He, w- he was doing it for study purposes, okay. not for any type of elimination, though you wouldn't know it from reading. <laughs> During July and August 1980, I shot all eight sapsuckers at the various orchards. Oh I preserved the stomachs, which were filled with insects. Some of these stomachs were examined by Professor Hagen, who wrote to me on August 21st as it follows. The woodpecker has hatched his food so fine that it is beyond my power or knowledge to determine accurately the composition of this bug hash. <laughs> so, Bug hash? I guess. <laughs> He's making that up. <laughs> but, but it was full of this type of stuff. I was concealed in the bushes to the northwest of a tree. At 11.15, I fired while a hummer and a young sapsucker were both dipping and killed the woodpecker. At 1.47, I tried again and killed a sapsucker and a male hummer with the same charge. Sheesh. My point is that it's it's all over the place. You couldn't really do a true study with this, but maybe someone could read this and say, oh, I would like to carefully construct a study around this. Okay, so that has been a lot so far. Yes. Yes, okay. So, finally, let's just finish up with some mammals who eat phloem sap. So we already talked about squirrels, red squirrels, who ate xylem sap, but now we're talking about other mammals that eat phloem sap. So like some of the birds and insects I mentioned earlier, there are some mammals that feed at sapsucker wells as well. And these include red squirrels, so they're hitting the xylem and the phloem. You've got eastern chipmunks, flying squirrels, porcupines, bats, and the American martin. A weasel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Martins have a really diverse diet. They eat small mammals, fish, bird eggs, carrion, fruit, seeds, leaves. They eat a lot of stuff, yeah. (laughs) Like I just said, they also feed at sapsucker wells. And it's actually unknown how martins find these wells. And we're going to jump slightly to a tangential point. And this, I'm just quoting here. Ursus americanus, the American black bear, is the major predator of sapsucker nests in our area. What? primarily uses nestling begging calls to locate sapsucker nests, which are typically within 20 to 40 meters of at least one sapsucker well tree. Did that not blow your mind? Yeah. Black bears? (laughs) Yeah. This is in our neck of the woods. Where was it? I did note where it was, but I forgot to write it down in my notes. But this is our neck of the woods. Okay. So it's not completely known how martins find the wells, even now, even after this study. But... The researchers think there's a chance that martins do the same thing, which is that they use the calls of the young to get a close approximation of where the wells might be, because the nests are generally within 20 to 40 meters of the nest. But the bears are using the nestling calls to find the, the nestlings. Nest. Right. And the martins may be using the calls to find the general vicinity the wells. of the well. Okay. Yes. Alternatively, the martin may actually have been attracted to the area to hunt on the adults, nestlings, or fledgling sapsuckers, yeah. and then opportunistically stumbled across the sap wells. That would seem to yeah, make sense. Right. And that could be the case, but martins are actually too large to fit through the sapsuckers' nest entrance, and they're actually not known to chew through the nest to get at the young. Like the bears must do. Which, yeah, I, I would imagine that's what the bears have to do, because yeah. <laughs> the bears are definitely not big yeah. enough to, to fit through. <laughs> but I should say that even though the martins do not get into the nest, there have been remains of nestling birds and adults occurring in the martin scat. 
Oh, so they're getting them somehow. Somehow, even yeah. though they're not eating through the nest. They steal so, them from the bear. Yeah. <laughs> so that is to say, there is evidence that they are hunting the birds and then possibly finding the wells. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to say, but I thought that that was pretty fascinating. What comes first? The bird or the well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm going to finish up on this last point. And this is some mammals that feed on phloem, but they don't feed from wells. Okay. This is an animal that we actually don't really have in our neck of the woods, the yellow-bellied gliders. They're arboreal and nocturnal gliding possums. Do you know about oh, these guys? No, never heard of yeah, them. Yeah, they're from Australia. Oh, of course. Yeah. The reason I left them in, because normally that would be something I'd cut out of my research, but the reason that it's interesting is that these are the only mammals besides humans who successfully tap trees for phloem sap. Up until this point, we we're talking about insects, right. and we we're talking about sap suckers. Right, and the squirrels use the sap suckers to get at the phloem sap. Exactly right. Yeah. See, I was listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I say successfully because there are some other animals that go, it, it sort of looks like they're going for the sap, but it's important to remember that when a tree bleeds, it isn't just bleeding sap. There are many other exudates. Altogether, these include the sap, there's gums, there's latex, there's resins, and sometimes nectar is actually considered an exudate. Okay. So the only one in that list that's actually a food is the sap, more or less. Most of these other things aren't edible under normal conditions. Right. So, Bill, do you know what a gumivore is? I would imagine something that feeds on gum. Right. <laughs> so it's a special kind of omnivore that eats primarily gums, but it also eats. It also gets it a little bit at the sap from trees as well as some bugs for protein. So these include some arboreal and terrestrial primates. Wow. So again, gum is one of those exudates that are not easily digested. But gumivores have gut microbes that actually <laughs> ferment the gum into essential nutrients. Wow. There's so many of these coevolutions cool. and right. these, these mutualisms that are going on. It's cool. It's not just in insects. Right. right? Yeah. The last thing I want to bring up, again, this is not an American problem, but I brought it up because who thought that gray squirrels could be so evil? I wasn't aware of this, but gray squirrels are actually invasive in Europe. Oh, do you know that? No, I did not know that. There's a lot of things that gray squirrels do in Europe. They displace European red squirrels due to competition. They maintain and spread a pox virus that causes a lethal disease in red squirrels. Uh, and this has been found in Britain and is expected to spread to Italy, France, and Switzerland within the next 20 to 30 years. Oh, but they're also expected to have negative impacts on woodland birds through nest predation and their bark stripping is causing damage to woodlands and plantations. And it seems like the squirrels are damaging the trees to get at nutrients. And the reason I say that is that there's evidence that they're drinking sap from the damaged trees that have high phloem volumes. When they analyze these trees, they can actually determine what the sap flow volume was, and the ones that tend to get damaged are the ones with the higher phloem sap volume. So they're picking those on purpose. Oh yeah, yeah. A big problem with this is that it lowers timber quality, which is something that you were talking about earlier, right. and it facilitates the penetration of insects and fungi into the wood. So it's actually possible that because they're stripping trees selectively, the squirrels could be changing the composition of European oh, forests. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Who would think the lowly squirrel? <laughs> the gray squirrel. And that is it. And I think it's just about time for the outro. Do you want to do the outro while we walk back to the car? Because sure. I am exhausted. That's, that's good. <laughs> All right. Did I'm you bring your sap? 
I did. Yes. So you, I, we forgot about it last time. I've carried this the whole way. I brought a canister of sap that uh, I wanted Steve to try. So I'm going to open it up here. There's not bugs in it like you had me have. <laughs> I poured that right out of the bucket into my water bottle. I, it looks real clean. Yeah. Came out of the tree this morning, today. Oh, I actually really like that. Isn't it good? It's like slightly sweet oh, water. That is good. Yeah. I can't even explain how refreshing this is. Yeah, because it's it's almost like water. When it goes through your mouth, you can tell it's somehow thicker. Something about the mouthfeel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's something about the mouthfeel, yeah. Um, this is great stuff. Isn't it good? This is the second treat that I've really liked on this podcast. <laughs> Holy cow. How long have you been doing this? 20 years, probably. So you're probably the best expert we could have had. <laughs> I only do it on a very small scale. Sure, but, sure, yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, guys. So... Man, you should really try some of that sap water. That's <laughs> Give really good. Give it a good. chance. Yeah. yeah so, Give it a try. All right, guys. I, we hope you enjoyed the episode. we really like to thank our growing list of supporters on Patreon. So thank you, Diane, Ken, Scott, Matt, Beth, we named the dog Indy, Paul, Molly, Rob, Alyssa, Dan, Dave, Chimera, Kimberly, and Lee. If that list keeps getting much longer... Who knows what we're going to have to start doing. I'll be all right with that. <laughs> We've also received one review since our bonus episode on Bark. That one is the episode that featured Matt from Indefensive Plants and Sarah from Midwest Explorer. So we'd like to give a big thank you to longtime user 79. And guys, keep those reviews coming. It really helps us get the word out to more people. We have 19 written reviews right now. And we'd really like to get to that arbitrary goal of 25. Yes. And we've been saying this for a while. We will do something special. Yeah. We're not sure. Maybe we should actually come up with it so it's more enticing. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> It'll be good. Yeah, it'll be the About Us page on our website. <laughs> <laughs> we'd also like to give a shout-out to the Awkward Botany blog for his review of our podcast earlier this month. No one really told us about it. I just happened to Google the field guides and it came up, so that was kind of cool. But if you like reading about botany, horticulture, agriculture, plant ecology, or urban ecology, definitely check out the Awkward Botany blog at awkwardbotany.com. So if you have any of your own questions, comments, or episode suggestions, send us an email at thefieldguides at gmail.com. Visit us on Instagram at fieldguidespodcast. Follow us on Twitter at fieldguidespod. Like and follow us on Facebook, and visit our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com. And as a reminder, if you guys don't use iTunes, you can actually download the episode straight from our website. There's a download link on the player itself. So if you like what you hear, help us get the word out by sharing the podcast with a friend. And if you'd like to financially support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash thefieldguides. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month for episode 19. See you next time, folks. <laughs>